Hey everyone, I apologize for not getting an episode out last week. Here's what happened. I basically recorded a two and a half hour long unscripted response to what was about a five minute clip from a Jordan Peterson lecture. So as you might imagine, the editing involved has proven to be quite a daunting task. It started out as a screen capture project where I was attempting to video record whatever was on my screen and also the audio at the same time. So I would just pause the video and comment on what Jordan Peterson had said. And I've decided that it would just make things easier and be more practical if I just exported the whole thing to audio and then edit it. And if you think about it, it would have made for a rather boring video anyway. Uh, my commentary was over two hours long. The clip I was commenting on was only about five minutes long. So you would have been staring at a pause screen for over two hours. So it just makes sense all around just to export the thing to audio and then edit it. So what you're about to hear is what I managed to salvage from that project. All right, here we go. And in advance, thanks for listening. So I've known for several weeks now that Jordan Peterson has been struggling with some health issues. I didn't bring it up on the show sooner because I didn't want to come across as being ghoulish or exploitative, uh, turning a person in their family's suffering into show fodder. But then I recently noticed that The Amazing Atheist had published a new Jordan Peterson video, and I assumed it would have something to do with, uh, you know, what he's going through medically, but it was actually a reaction to a Jordan Peterson video I had never seen before. It's a clip from one of his lectures where he directly criticizes or takes on the atheist worldview of people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, who he mentions by name. And as you might imagine, I kind of took issue with some of what Jordan Peterson had to say about atheism. I thought TJ and his brother did a really good job of refuting Peterson's claims, but I still couldn't refuse the temptation to chime in myself, hence today's episode. And since I kind of already cryptically touched on Peterson's health issues and passing, I guess I might as well fill you in. Apparently, he's been in Russia being treated for benzodiazepine addiction, and there's been some medical complications. But I think uh, last I heard, he's actually been doing better. So just on a human level, I think that's really good. Um, I'm glad to hear that for both him and his family. But anyway, okay, let's do this. I'll start playing the uh, playing the clip here, and I'll respond as we go. In Dostoevsky's book *Crime and Punishment*, he has a his main character uh, Raskolnikov decides that he's going to commit a murder, and he has very good justification for the murder. And Dostoevsky's very good at this. He he puts his characters into very very difficult moral situations and gives them full justification for pursuing the the uh, There's kind of an awkward pause here. That's, uh, that's Jordan, not me. Okay. For pursuing the pathway that they're pursuing. And so Raskolnikov, he's broke and starving. He wants to go to law school. His sister's about to prostitute herself, rough, roughly speaking, by marrying a guy that, that hates her, that she hates, and, that, and he has contempt for her, at least acts in that manner. He's trying to rescue his mother as well, who's also in dire financial straits. 
he, he, he goes to a pawnbroker to pawn his meager possession so that he can continue to scrape by. And she has this niece, I believe it's her niece, that's not very bright, who she basically treats as, an, as a slave and is horrible to. And, and so the, 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 the pawnbroker has this money. Raskolnikov is in dire need. He thinks, look, I'll just kill her because why the hell not? I'll take her money. She's not doing any good with it anyways. I'll free her niece, who's just lurking as a slave. She's got all these other people tangled up in her pawnbroker schemes. All that'll happen is the world will be a better place. And the only thing that's holding me back is conventional moral cowardice. And, you know, Dostoevsky has his character in Crime and Punishment go through days, hours, hours and days and weeks of intense imagination about this, rationalization about this trying to justify himself, placing, him outside, placing himself outside the law so that he can perpetrate this act, and telling himself with all the best nihilistic arguments that the only possible thing that could be holding him back is an, an arbitrary sense of indoctrinated morality. And so Dostoevsky explores that. He does commit the murder, and then, of course, all hell breaks loose because things don't necessarily turn out the way that you want. He gets away with it, however. Well, he gets away with it technically because no one knows he did it. But he doesn't get away with it in relationship to his own conscience. And so that the rest of the book explores that. Well, Dostoevsky, I believe it was in Crime and Punishment, although he makes the same point in many of his books, he makes a very fundamental point. And this is the kind of point that, that I think that people who haven't investigated these matters down this particularly lit, particular literary and philosophical pathway never grapple with. Dostoevsky said straightforwardly, if there's no God... So if there's no higher value, let's say, if there's no transcendent value, then you can do whatever you want. And that's the th question that he's investigating. And you see, this is why I have such frustration, say, with people like Sam Harris, the sort of radical atheists, because they seem to think that once human beings abandon their, their grounding in the transcendent, that the, the plausible way forward is with a kind of purest rationality that automatically attributes to other people equivalent value. It's like, I just don't understand that. They, they, they believe that that's the rational pathway. What the hell is irrational about me getting exactly what I want from every one of you whenever I want it at every possible second? And so you can kind of see where Jordan Peterson's going with this. He's kind of uh, backing up this idea uh, of Dostoevsky's that without God, all things are permissible. Without some kind of belief in a higher power, it's like the linchpin is pulled out and, you know, the whole, all of human morality, this whole construct collapses and people are free to do whatever the heck they want. You know what I mean? And I have a couple of issues with this. On the one hand, as a skeptic, a non-believer, someone who really values empirical data, factual truth... I think, you know, let's say that it just seems to be the case, which I do think it seems to be the case that there's not a lot of evidence for a higher power or especially a specific higher power, you know, a man-made concept of God like we find in all these man-made religions. You know, and technically, I'm an agnostic atheist, uh, you know, belief claim versus a knowledge claim. I don't claim to know for certain whether they're not whether or not there is a higher power in afterlife. Um, but belief wise, I 
I strongly doubt these things. And once again, I strongly doubt uh, the validity of man-made concepts of God, the Yahweh of the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, all the other, you know, man-made concepts of God out there. And if there isn't a God, it's kind of like tough shit. There isn't. I don't think we should cling to or promote the idea of a higher power, even though we doubt one, just because we think that the concept of God is needed to keep everyone in their place and from slitting each other's throats, you know? And as I've mentioned on the show before, I think that morality is at least partially rooted in biology, in evolutionary science. Um, I think by nature, we're a social species, and I don't like the sugarcoat thing. So as I always say, I think that we're a mixed bag. In part, yeah, we are kind of wired for things like altruism, compassion, group solidarity, group cooperation. But yeah, we're also wired for things like tribalism and violence. And we can see this when we look at animals like, you know, our closest animal relative, the chimpanzee, also the bonobos. And the bonobos are significantly more peaceful and gentle than the chimpanzee. And we know about the dark side of chimp nature, that they will sometimes form into roving bands and attack and kill male members of other chimpanzee groups. They will sometimes supplement, you know, supplement their diets with, uh, with meat by, you know, hunting down uh, monkeys and basically rending them apart alive and consuming them. Um, So chimpanzees can be very violent. And for demonstration purposes, I think chimps are a great kind of analog, you know, because like us, they can be horrifically violent and brutal and tribalistic, but they can also be very caring, very nurturing, Uh, compassionate and altruistic, at least within their group, you know what I mean? But also, just once again, I don't want to sugarcoat things, even within their group, even in an in-group dynamic, they can sometimes resort to things like infanticide and cannibalism, but so can humans for that matter, you know what I mean? Um, So I think, at least in part, our, our moral sense, our moral capacity is rooted, you know, wired into us evolutionarily. Um, And then, yes, we also kind of reinforce that with cultural norms, etc., which I think we should. I think that's the way we should operate. We should take that natural capacity for altruism and compassion and really magnify it and shore it up culturally. You know what I mean? I th- so I think Peterson's argument would be that, yeah, that's what religion does. It helps to shore that, uh, that sense of compassion and altruism up culturally. But I-, I think people like myself, and not to put myself on the same level as people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, I don't have the, you know, the degree of education that they have. But I think that Harris and Dawkins would agree that you don't need religion or superstitious belief and the in the quote-unquote transcendent or a higher power to sure up that moral sense that you can be secular. And there's a lot of secular humanists out there. And I think there's a lot of non-believers out there who are very principled people and who, at least in part, you know, dropped religion because of their moral principles. 
And so I think this applies in a couple of different ways. I think in one sense, the first sense, that I think non-believers, myself included, find it kind of ethically or morally distasteful, intellectually dishonest to pretend you believe in something, a higher power in this case, when you really don't just because you think it's necessary to kind of, you know, bond society together. And if it was necessary, then yeah, I could see the argument, but I don't think it is. And then secondly, I think when you look at, and one thing that I like about Jordan Peterson is I at least like his interest in things like religion and symbolism and psychology. And I find many of his, many of his lectures to be interesting. Uh, and I think there is value in religious symbolism and in mythology and, and this kind of thing. But I think there's a dark side to that too. And I think a lot of what fellow non-believers, myself included, take issue with, with religion is uh, some of the morally problematic teachings and stories, um, things that can be used to justify bigotry against, you know, homosexuality, um, against people who hold different religious beliefs, you know, all the kind of tribalism and anachronistic violence and bigotry that we can find in the Old Testament. And I think there are some powerful stories that, uh, in the Old Testament that can be used for moral instruction, but I think it's bad to take this stuff literally. And when you take it literally, it becomes very dangerous. And, you know, stuff like the injunctions or prohibitions against homosexuality uh, that you find in the Old Testament, uh, all the kind of ugly stuff that you find in Leviticus. And so I don't think that literal belief in a man-made belief system or religion. And I always think about a friend and listener, Liz Marie, whenever I refer to religions as being man-made, uh, she kind of goes, well, what other kind are there? But, <laughs> and so I feel the same way. It's kind of redundant to say man-made religion, but you know, what I'm getting at, there's a lot of people who think that religions kind of come from on high. It's almost as if they think, you know, the finished, completed Bible kind of dri drifted down from heaven. You know what I mean? Or that God literally inspired every word in the, uh, you, you know, in, in these man-made holy books when, yeah, it's a bit redundant, but yes, they're man-made. Uh, and, you know, religions often tend to contradict one another externally, uh, and they often tend to contradict themselves internally, you know. And what I mean by that is, let's take Christianity, for instance. Um, we have four different Gospels. Three of them are, re are referred to as the synoptic Gospels, meaning to see alike. And they tend to agree on a lot of stuff, but there's even some contradictions there. And then we have the Gospel of John, which is the most different from the other three. And we... and. People have been listening to this show for, you know, years are probably <laughs> tired of me sound, sounding like a broken record when I use the same old examples. But, you know, in the Gospel of John, we literally have uh, Jesus dying on a different day. And we have the whole, the kind of infancy narrative, which is cobbled together from a different, you know, from two different Gospel accounts and attempts are made to harmonize them. Um so there's all sorts of 
contradictions with uh, with religions. And I think it's painfully obvious that they're man-made. And even if you want to make an argument that we basically got where we are morally in part due to religion, which I, I think there's an argument you can make against that. Um, you know, and, and people like to say that we're a Judeo-Christian civilization. And uh, Christian apologists will say things like, atheists are you know, sitting in God's lap while slapping him in the face. And what they mean by that is that our civil our civilization was built on Judeo-Christian ethics. And essentially, we're saying now we don't need those, and we're kind of slapping God in the face. Well, I would say that morality predates Christianity uh, and Judaism. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that you could, you know, I think people often associate the so-called golden rule with Christianity, but this the so-called golden rule that you know you shouldn't do to others what you wouldn't want done to yourself. You can go back and find instances of this in ancient Egyptian religion, uh, in things like the the Babylonian Code of Hammurabi, and even if you read the works of some of you know the Greek philosophers, the Roman Stoics, and such, you can see these. There's a strong sense of morality uh, in that in that Judeo Christianity doesn't have a sole monopoly on ethics and morality, and that even in the early church, um, a, a lot was drawn from by early Christian thinkers from Greek and Roman philosophy and things like that. I believe especially Platonism as well as Aristotelian philosophy, if I remember correctly. And it's funny, there's this weird little thing that I always do in my head to kind of remind myself of the uh, the chronology of uh, the major Greek philosophers. I'll say Socrates taught Plato, Plato taught Aristotle, and Aristotle was the tutor of Alexander the Great. I, mean, I used to be... Uh, really kind of taken with Alexander the Great. I remember reading, uh, I believe, what was it? Uh, Arian's Campaigns of Alexander. And I believe there's actually been some debate over whether or not Socrates was an actual historical figure. I remember uh, Hitchens talking about that sometimes during debates. And when some Christian apologist would try to trap him, he'd basically say, well, it doesn't matter to me whether or not he was real. You know, that you can still benefit from his teachings via the works of Plato, even if he wasn't an actual historical figure. And that would come up when people would be discussing the uh, historicity of Jesus. But where the heck was I? Oh, okay. And sometimes people even say that, you know, our legal system is built on Judeo-Christian civilization or whatever. And I think I've said this before on the show, that might partly be true, but... Even our legal system, a lot of that was inspired by Anglo-Saxon law, which I believe was borrowed from Viking law, basically. Uh, the Vikings had this thing, well, called a thing. You know, they had uh, this whole system. Uh, people think of the Vikings as just being these bl bloodthirsty marauders. And to their enemies, they probably certainly seem that way. And I think even within their own in-group, within their own culture, we would probably view some of their actions as being, or, you know, traditions as being barbaric. Uh, but they also, the Vikings also had a pretty solid legal system, and you couldn't just go around 
killing people within your own group uh, willy nilly. Uh, you you know there were trials for murder, and you had to prove that you there was some justification for taking another person's life. So I think a lot of our legal system comes via the Anglo-Saxon tradition, which comes via Viking tradition. And then, you know, even much of our political system is based on the political systems of ancient Greece and Rome. The ancient Roman Senate, uh, Greek notions of democracy, that kind of thing. And I think, you know, even when you look back to the founding fathers, these were men who were products of the Enlightenment to some degree, but also many of them people who owned slaves, you know. So yeah, the founding fathers were a bit of a mixed bag. And as an American, when I look back to the founding fathers, you know, I think it's a source of shame and embarrassment that they were men who owned other human beings as chattel or property. But on the other hand, I'm really proud of the founding fathers in the sense that they were products of the Enlightenment. And many of them were deists at best, where if they did even believe in a god, they believed in a kind of hands-off god, a god who kind of kick-started, you know, this uh, clockwork universe and then backed off, wasn't an interventionist god, you know what I mean? Which is probably in, in that day as close as you were going to get to atheism, I think. Although I think uh, Thomas Paine, I, th- I believe, was an atheist. But men like uh, Jefferson, uh, Thomas Jefferson, I believe, was a deist, he famously had the uh, the Jefferson Bible, where he basically, literally with a razor, cut out all the superstitious bits, the miracles, etc., um, from the New Testament, and you were basically left with, like, the wise teachings of Jesus. Oh, yeah, for a minute, I'm like, how the hell did I get onto the Founding Fathers and deism? But I was talking about how the Judeo-Christian tradition doesn't have a monopoly on morality or ethics, and that a lot of this stuff can be traced back to the classical world, um, and that even the early Christians borrowed from the classical world. And in fairness to Peterson, I don't think he's saying here explicitly that the Judeo-Christian model is the only way to go, you know what I mean? But I think we see what he's getting at. He's saying that... um, Western civilization is built kind of on a a religious foundation. And when you throw that out, everything collapses. So it's a kind of fear-mongering, basically saying that we need some kind of belief in a higher power or everything's just going to go to hell. And so I think Peterson kind of tries to paint people like Dawkins and Harris as being somehow naive, that they think we can move beyond God and still be good and moral. Um, But he seems to imply that, you know, it's almost, I think he gauges in a kind of fear-mongering that if you get rid of God, that the whole foundation goes and the the whole house of cards collapses. And I don't think that's true. I mean, once again, you know, I value trying to be as intellectually honest as possible and not sugarcoating things when I shouldn't. So I think there, it is true in a way that once you let go of literal belief in a god or a higher power, and I can speak to this because, you know, I was raised Roman Catholic and I went through, to borrow a religious phrase, uh, phrase what I call 
you know, a dark night of the soul, where the most horrific and terrifying thing to me was the idea that there may not be a god or an afterlife, uh, you know, an immortal soul or whatever. And this was profoundly troubling to me. And this was a, a big source of kind of like existential angst and depression for me. And I eventually got over it. You know what I mean? And I think the the human mind is very resilient in that sense, as the human body can be very resilient. And I was eventually able to reach a place where I saw that even though it was hard to imagine when I was in that state, you know, that state of kind of nihilistic despair, that you can reach a, a kind of place where even without literal belief in a higher power, even without a certain promise of the uh, of an afterlife, that you could still find meaning in this life, in this world, and that morality is there, whether you believe in God or not. You know, unless you're a sociopath or a psychopath or something, morality is still there. It's just a question of where does it come from, right? And I think partly, like I said before, I think it comes from just being social animals. But I get their thinking that in a, in a way, when you get rid of God, you can make an argument that it's like teetering over the abyss, <laughs> over this chasm, you know what I mean? This nihilistic chasm. But... That being said, you don't need God to be a good person. And like I said, I think many people, many non-believers out there are non-believers because they're moral and principled people. They're people who think that we should want to seek the actual truth and not just pacify ourselves with fables and what seem to be obviously uh, man-made belief systems i.e. religions, um, and there are people who find certain religious teachings or concepts to be morally off-putting or offensive, like the idea of putting someone to death because of uh, adultery or because that they're gay or because they believe in the wrong God or because they dare to pick up sticks on the Sabbath or whatever, you know? Um so, uh, yeah, from the point of view of a non-believer, it's kind of a scary proposition to think, you know, given some of the intolerance and barbarism you can find in these texts, that people would allow their morality to be informed by these anachronistic man-made belief systems. And like I said, I think sometimes there can be positive biblical stories or stories from other religions that you can turn to for a kind of moral instruction. Uh, I was going to use the story of the woman taken in adultery, for example. Um, you know, the story where the crowd is going to stone this woman for being an adulteress, and Jesus puts a stop to it and says, let you who be without sin cast the, th cast the first stone. And even then, you know, that is thought to be a later interpolation, uh, which blew my mind when I first learned it, you know, learned that that wasn't always a part of the Bible. That was something added on by later uh, editors or whatever, uh, a later interpolation as it's called. 
So yeah, we can look at certain religious stories or even mythology. What are mythologies but basically dead religions, you know? And uh, we can find inspirational stories and symbolism. But I don't like this kind of what I called fear-mongering that Jordan Peterson seems to engage in. We're like, uh-oh, no. You better not. You be Everything's going to go to hell if you get rid of, you know, God, belief in God or whatever. And then he's slippery when you try to nail him down on what he means by belief in God. Are you speaking figuratively? Are you speaking literally? And he's kind of sneaky with that. And he said in his own word, I'm paraphrasing, but he's basically said he doesn't like being asked point blank what he means by God because he thinks it's people trying to, you know, trap him or pigeonhole him. In a way, I'd say rightfully so. So, yeah, I think there's nothing wrong with trying to back someone into a corner during an intellectual debate or an honest conversation and asking or saying, what do you mean by God? You know, do you mean God symbolically, figuratively, or do you mean literally that you believe in a personal God, some kind of higher power that consciously designed all this, brought all this into being, uh, might be, in, you know, one in the same as a certain, what I would call man-made concept of God, Yahweh, Jehovah, whatever, you know, because uh, there's a big difference between using the word God loosely in some vague or metaphorical sense and using the word God to mean a literal, personal creator God some kind of supernatural entity. You know, I think, in, in fairness to Pearson, I think he has kind of clarified in some cases what he kind of means by God, that God is kind of the collection of our highest ideals or something like that, you know what I mean? But that's that's quite different than literal belief in a personal creator God who doesn't want you picking up sticks on, you know, on the Sabbath or, or something like that. Those two things are quite different. I think he can often be kind of evasive with that, but yet he still engages in this fear-mongering. Uh, but let's see what else he says. Why is that uh, irrational? And how possibly... Oh, yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> he just jogged my memory. So he was saying, you know, what the hell is irrational about me trying to get whatever I want, whenever I want, from other people? You know, what the hell is irrational about that? And I would say that if you want to be a member of a civilized society where your own personal interests are secured, then it is irrational to go out in the street and just try to get whatever you want from whoever at any time. If right now you exit your house and go into your neighbor's house and try to beat them up and take their wallet or whatever you see that you like in their house, you know what I mean? Or you try to uh, forcibly have sex with their wife or husband or whatever, you know what I mean? Uh, that's not going to go too good with you. Most likely you're going to end up in jail. If you don't like the way, if you think someone's giving you the stink eye, so you pick up a metal, uh, you know, pipe in the middle of the street and bash their head in, you know, things aren't going to go too good for you. So having certain laws or prohibitions in place helps to protect both your own interests and the interests of your neighbor. Having a kind of social contract that, all right, I won't bash in your door and bludgeon you and take your money or whatever, you know, and in return, you won't do that to me. 
You know, I mean, that golden rule, treating people as you'd like to be treated yourself. I think it's the kind of cornerstone of, in general, of these kind of social contracts that we have in place. Um, and I don't think you need literal belief in a god to maintain that kind of social contract. And we can look at places in the world where most people are at best Christian nominally, like if we look at England or the UK, or if we look at um, parts of Scandinavia, and, and some of those countries have even, that have begun to kind of let go of literal belief in religion, have better social safety nets and take better care of their citizens than we do, you know? Here where we're supposed to be, um, a, you know, a, here where we're kind of this country steeped in religion, you know what I mean? And um, in some ways, we're more dog-eat-dog than these more secular countries. And often people like Jordan Peterson will kind of, and I think in a sense rightfully so, kind of fear-monger about the dangers of communism or whatever, you know? Um, and they like to paint communist societies as be you know the big flaw the fatal flaw of uh communism is lack of belief in god whereas i think other people like dawkins etc have pointed out the people killed in communist dictatorships you know those people weren't being killed in the name of atheism um and that way you could even argue that these places like modern day North Korea, that these communist countries often employed a kind of state religion. Uh, we can see that with North Korea, where the dear leader is almost, you know, practically deified, uh, down to right down to absurd uh, claims like. Um, Kim Jong-il didn't defecate, that he got a strike his first time bowling, that he could drive at the age of three, or always took a perfect golf swing or something like that, you know? And I think similar claims are now, you know, made about his son, uh, Kim Jong-un. And I think it was similar with communist dictators like Joseph Stalin, probably not to that absurd degree. But what you basically had was a kind of cult of personality, a kind of state religion. And you probably could make something of an argument that, oh, well, maybe that state religion is filling a void left by, you know, actual religion, uh, actual belief in God. I think there's some merit to that argument that, yeah, you get rid of God and replace him with the dear leader. You know what I mean? And you end up with this strong man who kind of has complete control, this kind of tyrannical control over, you know, an entire nation or whatever. But I think both in the case of these kind of communist state religions, so to speak, and traditional religions, you know, these are both forms of indoctrination. And I think you do always have to be wary, on the lookout for anything that could allow the rise of, of a strongman or a dictator. And uh, I think in a way, not to, try, you know, not to try and make every episode political by bringing up Trump, but I think part of why, I, I think part of what people find scary about Trump is the kind of 
blind allegiance people seem to have to him. You know, you have this kind of megalomaniacal figure, um, probably not, not the most ethical or the most intelligent of human beings, and uh, yet this really passionate blind allegiance to the guy. And I think when you look at that, you almost get a glimpse of what it must look like to witness the rise of a tyrant or whatever. And me personally, my view on communism, and actually I don't find political science to be all that interesting. And I don't really know all that much about the history of communism, uh, etc. But I tend to like the idea of basically a hybrid type of society or system that we have at the moment, you know, um, where we have aspects of capitalism, where people can start their own business, you know, work hard, become successful, innovate. And at the same time, where we do have some kind of social safety net. And it's funny, remember when we see people with signs saying things like, get your government hands off of my social security or whatever, whatever it was, Medicare. And the irony being that things like Medicare and social security, which people really value, even, you know, people on the right, even the pull yourself up by your own bootstraps crowd, you know, really uh, value. These are essentially examples of of a socialist kind of system. And so we really do have a kind of hybrid system, which I think is good, where we have capitalism and you can be a self-made person, you can reach for, you know, aim for the stars and uh, become successful. But we also have a, a social safety net that makes sure that people don't slip through the cracks, you know? Um, and I would argue that we probably don't have a strong enough social safety net. You know, here we are in the 21st century and we still have people living in the streets, etc. Or, you know, families who can't afford a $500 or $1,000 emergency or whatever. Or people who, you know, who are bankrupted by a cancer diagnosis or, you know... Um, Someone has a medical emergency and they're taken to the hospital in an ambulance and then they're, they're suddenly, you know, hit with uh, a $2,000, $3,000 bill, whatever it is, for the ambulance ride. You know, so I think we don't have enough of a social safety net. But me personally, I think that's kind of the perfect thing is kind of like a hybrid system where you have policies in place that seek to make sure that people don't get lost, slip through the cracks, end up on the streets, or bankrupted by a medical emergency. But people can still strive and thrive and um, make a name for themselves and, and become successful, you know? So not by any stretch in the imagination am I trying to glamorize or justify communist regimes or people, you know, these kind of uh, tyrannical strongmen like Stalin and Lenin, uh, not John Lennon, you know what I'm saying, <laughs> or, uh, you know, Mao or um, Kim Jong-il, etc. I despise those kind of regimes. Um, and the idea of us ever, ever having something like that here in the U.S., um, yeah, it's horrifying. So uh, I'm definitely not 
carrying a banner for communism or something like that. But what I'm saying is I think it's kind of intellectually dishonest when people try to use communism as an example of what happens to society when you get rid of God. Um, just like people are indoctrinated to religion, I think they're, they're indoctrinated into these kind of state religions, these kind of cults of personality. But I think what we should really value is things like freedom of thought, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom to believe whatever you want to believe. And these are so kind of enlightenment values like the founding fathers that even more important than the belief in a higher power is the belief in freedom of expression, free thought, etc. I think those are the things that keep tyranny at bay. Uh, not necessarily literal belief in God, um, etc. It's when you give up these freedoms that you create a void that, you know, a strong man can fill and take over. Um, and I was just thinking to myself how, you know, all this stuff about, oh, you know, should we give up God or not? Ooh, oh, no. It's like, the end of the day, it's kind of moot because everyone kind of has to answer that for themselves. You know, everyone has to look within and, and ask themselves whether they actually believe a God exists or not. I mean, if I use myself, for example, I'm someone who's always been interested in religion and spirituality, mythology, etc. And I often half jokingly say that's why I'm a non-believer. You know, if you research this stuff long enough, you see just how man-made it is. And that kind of reminds me of um, Bart Ehrman, who I haven't mentioned on the show in a long time. But this uh, biblical scholar who started out, you know, very, very religious, and it was actually his studying of religion, of the Bible, etc., of the New Testament, that led him to the realization that, man, you know, you can real when you study this stuff, you really see how the sausage is made and uh, the sausage of faith. You can see how man-made it all is. Um, and while I look at myself, you know, I'm someone who's kind of moved beyond a literal belief in God and who views religions as, you know, just man-made belief systems. And I like to think I'm fairly moral. I have a pretty good moral compass, you know what I mean? Like I said, there's lots, there's so many non-believers out there who are good, moral, principled people. Um, so I don't think that belief, literal belief in a higher power is necessary to be a good person or to have a good society, a good and caring society. And like I said, yeah, at the end of the day, you know, it, to some degree it's moot, you know, um, trying to preach about, you know, trying to lecture people about whether or not they should believe in a higher power or whether or not it's dangerous to uh, for society to throw out the idea of a higher power. Because at the end of the day, it's a personal question you have to answer for yourself. Um, I mean, the people around you can preach all they want about, you know, how you should believe in God. But at the end of the day, do you, I mean, what do you think? Uh, when you listen to that still small voice in the back of your head, I mean, do you believe or or do you not? You know what I mean? Um, and I imagine it's quite common. There's a lot of people who kind of culturally or nominally, you know, religious, but 
they have their they have their own doubts, you know, um, and that's something all of us have to wrestle with on a on a personal level, uh, whether or not we actually believe. Doesn't matter, you know, how many Jordan Petersons we have warning us about the dangers of getting rid of God or how many people like me you have, you know, preaching about how you don't need God, uh, a literal belief in God to be a good person, whatever. At the, at the end of the day, it's, uh, I mean, each one of us has to answer that question for ourselves. And my own sense of reason has, you know, you know, my journey basically <laughs> led me to the conclusion that you know, can't prove whether or not there there is a God, but I got some serious doubts, man. You know, re religion seem a, very obviously man-made. You know, I, I don't see any compelling evidence for any of the supernatural faith claims for any of the world's religions. You know, and that's, a, I, I think, where um, it's a no-man's land, man. We don't know exactly why we're here or how we got here or what awaits us after we die. Uh, we know we're here now. You know what I mean? And I think we should value empirical evidence. We should take our own existence seriously enough to want to know the actual truth rather than insisting on literal belief in some ancient stories because they make life more bearable in the face of our own mortality, you know? And believe me, I understand the temptation and this takes us back to the subject of principles and integrity. Like I said, I, I think a lot of non-believers are very, you know, principled people. And yeah, it might be tempting to want to just take the blue pill and go back to sleep. And I can't believe I just used that matrix analogy. I hate that whole red pill, blue pill thing. <laughs> um but anyway, yeah, it might be tempting to, you know, want to lull yourself back to sleep or to do everything in your power to maintain your suspension of disbelief, you know. But to me, you know, there's something to be said for the integrity of wanting to know the actual truth. And I don't mean truth in the Jordan Peterson-esque sense. I mean truth as in factual, empirical truth. And not to sound redundant or like a broken record, but trying to search for the actual truth in the face of one's own mortality. I think, to me, that's principled. That That's about the most principled and um, intellectually honest stance you can take. I don't know. Here I am. Some damn God die. Uh Let's look at the evidence or lack thereof honestly and and see where the facts or the truth lead. And once again, truth in the empirical sense. Let's see. Uh, I kind of lost my place. Is that uh, irrational? And how possibly is that more irrational? Oh, yeah, that's where I went off on that long tangent. But once again, just to reiterate, the way he so confidently says that what's irrational about me wanting whatever I want, whenever I want it, and taking it from you. Like I was saying before, there's a lot about that that's irrational. If you want to be able to sleep at night without clutching a baseball bat or keeping one eye open, you know, for invading marauders or whatever, um, it makes sense to have a social contract in place, like I said. All right, I won't 
bust down your door and take all your stuff if you don't bust down my door and take all my stuff. You know, it's like in your own best interest and the best interest of your neighbor to have a kind of social contract like that in place. Um, I mean, maybe if you're Genghis Khan or, or is it Genghis? <laughs> and you maybe if you're some conqueror that was able to amass, you know, a gigantic army, then you could say, hmm, what's... Uh, What's irrational about me just, you know, invading this place and taking whatever I want? But most of us, you know, we're like, we're not Genghis Khan or Alexander the Great, you know, uh, and we and it makes sense to have a social contract in place where I won't mess with you if you don't mess with me. You know, you got your property. I have my property. You know what I mean? Anyway. Well, then us cooperating so we can both have a good time of it. I don't understand that. Wait, let me hear that again, because he kind of makes my point. That more irrational second. Why is that uh, irrational? That that's the rational pathway? What the hell is irrational about me getting exactly what I want from every one of you whenever I want it at every possible second? Why is that uh, irrational? And how possibly is that more irrational than us cooperating so we can both have a good time of it? So he kind of makes my point there. Like, like he's saying that cooperating so we can both have a good time of it. He's saying like that's um, not any more rational than the take what I want when I want it type of thing. But inherently, of course, it's more rational to uh, cooperate so we can both have some kind of quality of life where we don't have to worry about you know, our neighbor ransacking our house in the middle of the night. Uh, obviously, that's more rational. And like I, I talked about our morality probably being at least in part, you know, evolutionary, uh, evolutionary uh, or its roots being evolutionary. And yeah, I mean, you look at, yeah, nature is red in tooth and claw, but there's also lots of examples of animals practicing group cooperation, Um Examples of animal altruism it is bar as barbaric and brutal as chimpanzees can be. For the most part, if you look at chimps, you know, they have a little hierarchy. Um, with bonobos, I believe they actually have a matriarchy. Uh, but, you know, th there is like a, a power hierarchy or whatever. But generally speaking, they live in these little groups where... Um, they respect one another's bad, and we're talking about chimpanzees. You know, they respect one another's boundaries. They groom one another. Uh, maybe even share like child ra rearing responsibilities. Um, when you look at a group of chimp, as violent as they can be in some instances, you know, chimps aren't constantly trying to rip each other's faces off, and you know, even with wolves, uh, you know, an animal like a wolf or wild canids or whatever. Um, th they're not constantly trying to tear each other's throats out. There's a, there's certain boundaries that are respected. You know, there might be some snarling and posturing, the occasional fight or whatever, but even animals, and yes, technically we are animals, you know, our, our wild animals are able to practice and maintain a kind of group cooperation. I don't understand that. Of course you don't. I mean, it's as if the, the psychopathic tendency is irrational. There's nothing irrational about it. It's Yeah, it's like psychopathy is 
to me, it's inherently irrational. When you look at uh, psychopaths, uh, you know, looking whether they're serial killers or whatever, and sometimes, you know, there's that argument. Well, it's not an argument. I think it's basically, you know, it's factually known that, you know, not every psychopath is a, a murderer or a serial killer. Often people who lack that kind of empathy that most of us have, um, most of them aren't killers, you know, but sometimes they're drawn to things like uh, Wall Street and, th- you know, uh, these kind of occupations where you can go kind of far if you have a mentality that, like, I'm going to screw the little guy and I'm going to accrue all the wealth or whatever, you know. But even then, often people are held accountable, whether it's like Enron or whatever, you know. And when people ultimately realize how much you're fleecing or taking advantage of other people. They're not going to think too kindly of you. In the case of like a psychopath, like some drifter who goes around killing people or whatever, um, eventually they're going to end up dead or in jail. They basically have to live life, rightfully so, like, you know, on the outside, on the, the fringes of society, because they're breaking that social contract. Pure naked self-interest. How is that irrational? I don't understand that. Where And so once again, you know, I'm reminded of kind of animal social structures or whatever. Like you're saying, what's irrational about pure selfish self-interest or whatever? And yeah, to some degree, we all have that where we have our own needs that need to be met as far as you know, roof over our heads, enough money to make sure we can, you know, we can maintain some kind of subsistence or whatever. And so, of course, you know, everyone has needs and desires, but if you overstep your bounds and just try to take what you want when you want it, you know, social contract or laws be damned, uh, that's, uh, it's not in your neighbor's best interest. It's not in your best interest either, because most likely you're going to end up, you know, dead or in jail or something. Um, and once again, you know, even, I hate saying even animals because we're animals and I'm an animal lover, but I'm trying to say it's like even groups of wild animals, you know, are able to exhibit group cooperation or behave as if they have some measure of a social contract, you know? It's like even, you know, if you look out your window in the morning and see a bunch of birds in your yard, um, they're not trying to actually kill each other, you know, kill one another in some kind of orgy of violence uh, because they all want all the worms for themselves. You know, they just, they operate in a way, maybe once in a while, two birds might fight over the same worm or something, but generally they tolerate each other, you know, it's... I don't know. I feel like I shouldn't even have to be saying all this. Where's the pathway from rationality to to an egalitarian virtue? Uh, duh. (laughs) Just like I've already said, um, an an egalitarian system or ethic is in the best interest of both the individual and everyone else, you know? So it's and you, you don't have to be a saint or an angel to realize that if I want my boundaries respected, it makes sense if I respect the next guy's boundaries too. You know what I mean? 
the social contract once again. Maybe that's the drinking game uh, phrase of the week. The hell not every man for himself and the devil take the hindmost. It's a perfectly coherent philosophy. It kind of scares me a little that he thinks that. <laughs> uh, I was going to say it's like those people who think that the only thing keeping us from slitting one another's throats is belief in it's superstitious belief in some higher power. But, you know, kind of that's kind of Jordan Peterson, too. He's kind of saying that um, belief in the transcendent or a higher power is the glue that, you know, keeps society together or whatever. But like I said, you can witness group solidarity, cooperation, altruism, even in the animal kingdom. Um, once again, not trying to sugarcoat things. There's a lot of horror and violence and suffering in in the animal kingdom, but usually within the in-group, at least, among members of one's own species. You know, you can see um, some level of cooperation or uh, of the individuals in the group tolerating one another. I mean, sure, like I said, you know, you can be like some Wall Street psychopath where you're trying to make as much money as possible and uh, screw the little guy. Sure, but I don't think, um, but there's a difference between that and say someone just like acting like a a blood-crazed barbarian and taking whatever they, literally taking whatever they want in the moment. You know what I mean? It's like, walk out of your house right now wrap a handkerchief around your fist and punch through your uh, your neighbor's car and uh, start, you know, hot-wiring it. Guarantee that's not going to go too good for you. You know what I mean? So there are some ways in society in which there are outliers. There are literal psychopaths, deviants who will harm other people. But most people just understand that not only because it's the decent thing to do, but out of a sense of self-interest too, it's good to respect other people's boundaries, etc. You know what I mean? But like, yeah, there of course there's ways in which people will try to, um, you know, unscrupulous, you know, unscrupulous people will try to uh, take advantage of the little guy, try uh, to do all sorts of unethical things to make as much money as possible. But I think there's a big difference between that and uh, saying, you know, I'm not saying he's necessarily saying this, but it's almost like he is by using this Dostoevsky example, you know, um, you know, of the guy who rationalizes why it's okay to murder or something. Uh, uh, without God, all things are permissible. And even in the even within the story, the guy ultimately, even though he gets away with it, as Jordan Pearson says he's still punished by his conscience. And to me, that's, you know, part of the legacy of being social animals who are wired for group cooperation, uh, compassion, empathy. Yeah, violence and tribalism too. But we do have, we are wired for a sense of empathy, the ability to put ourselves mentally in someone else's shoes and consider how they would feel you know, or consider how we would feel if what happened to them happened to us. And at this point, you know, we can even project that onto, you know, other members of other species, onto certainly um, members of other cultures and societies. We can, we can take that in-group trait, that propensity for 
empathy and apply that to even others outside of our immediate group. And so it makes sense to me that within Dostoevsky's story, even though the person technically gets away with it, they're punished by their own conscience. That's what I would kind of expect from, you know, a uh, evolved social animal um, who's wired for some level of compassion or group cooperation. And it's actually one that you can institute in the world with a fair bit of material success if you want to do it. So I don't... Un and that's... He's probably referring to what I was just talking about. That sure, there's like Wall Street sharks who try to fleece the little guy and stuff like that. But, you know, th there's a difference between that and being like, oh, without God, all things really are permissible. I'm just going to kill this random person walking down the street. I'm just going to bust into my neighbor's house. You know, there's a big difference. And even like society doesn't look very kindly on like these Wall Street sharks who take advantage of people, you know? Um, and this reminds me of something really dark, man, really dark. I forget what led me to this, but there's this um, horrible, horrible story out of... Uh, I'm trying to think if it was in Russia or if it was in Eastern Europe. Okay, I just looked it up. It's actually, um, I wonder if, uh, this, is, <laughs> this is a horrible thing to type into the search uh, bar, but three guys, one hammer. You can see there's already suggestions here. Three guys, one hammer murderers are... Yeah, so I can't pronounce that for the life of me. But they're referred to as the whatever this uh, place name is, Maniacs. Um, and this happened in the Ukraine. Okay, And this is just horrible stuff. I would strongly advise not looking this up yourselves. Um, or, or, or if you do, not actually clicking on any videos or whatever. I think how I found out about this originally is there were reaction videos on YouTube about it where people would watch the video. You couldn't see what, what they were looking at, but you would see the horrified reactions on their faces or whatever. So these guys, they're like three young guys. Two of them, I think, were the ones who tended to do the actual killing. And, and there was another who would videotape uh, things. They were just these nuts. The, I don't know if they're teenagers or in their early 20s. But they would just basically do what Jordan Peterson was talking about. Like, why shouldn't I just do what I want when I want or take what I want from you, you know? So they start off by killing animals, which is often, you know, they, they say kind of a, a signature or um, a kind of hallmark uh, uh, that someone might, uh, you know, lack empathy, be a, uh, be a psychopath and might eventually move on to killing humans. If you see people who... Uh, harm animals. So it, it's just awful stuff. I never actually watched the video, but I've seen stills of it and it's bad. And the video is referred to as three guys, one hammer. So one of the guys, one of the young guys is videotaping it. And these other two guys basically stop like a middle-aged man on a bike, um, take him off the bike or whatever. And they're in a wooded area and they literally 
bash the guy's skull in. And they record themselves doing this. And it's got to be one of the most horrific and debased. Even though I, I didn't watch the video. Just the stills and the descriptions. Like watching the reaction videos. They basically just take this other human being and unmake his face with a uh, with a hammer. And they started out there, they kind of built up to that. But I guess one day they were, one of them happened to have a hammer and they passed a, like a young woman on the street. And the guy just spins, one of them just spins around with the hammer and hits the woman on the head. And they, they just, that became their uh, MO. They just found random people and brutally killed them with a hammer. And it was like sport to them. You know what I mean? And I think gladly, so, you know, very fortunately so, this is aberrant in human society. Whether we're talking about some indigenous group in the Amazon or Papua New Guinea, or we're talking about, you know, in the industrialized West. That, it's very uncommon for, or rather uncommon, for someone to just go completely rogue and start killing innocent random people without provocation, you know? Um, and, you know, ultimately, these guys had the pay for making that decision to over, to, to break that social contract. And I don't know how long they got sentenced for, but as far as I know, they're in jail. And this right here says life imprisonment. Yeah, life imprisonment for the two guys who actually did the killings. Nine years imprisonment for the camera guy. Um, so it's like, it, it kind of reminds me of video games. Like, <laughs> you know, like a game like Red Dead Redemption or like Skyrim. These open world video games where... Um, I remember I used to do this with, with Red Dead. I used to do it with Skyrim too. Like in both games, there's towns you can visit, you know? And in the game, you're free to try to steal uh, bread or food, whatever it is. Uh, go into a building where you're not supposed to be. Or you're free to attack a guard in the town. And then you have to kind of pay for it. You know, usually what, ha even if your character is very powerful, usually until you get extremely powerful, like you pay for it. Like the citizens and the guards will just swarm you. You know what I mean? And your, your character will eventually be imprisoned or killed for, you know, committing, openly committing crimes. And uh, it's like that game, Red Dead Redemption. I haven't played the second one yet, but these are, these are Western games. And if you want to, you can choose to try to rob a bank or punch a random citizen or whatever or shoot someone. And the whole town just turns against you. And the police swarm in waves, you know, and come at you. And so, yeah, it's just like common sense that for the good of both the individual and the whole, it makes sense to kind of have a golden rule type of thing or to respect the next person's boundaries you know what I mean? I don't even think it's something that necessarily needs to be said. And here I am. Uh, <laughs> this is like a five-minute video, and I've been going at this forever. To me, I think that, that the universe that people like Dawkins and Harris 
inhabit is so intensely conditioned by mythological presuppositions that they take for granted the, the ethic that emerges out of that as if it's just a given, a rational given. And this, of course, precisely do, not Nietzsche's observation as well as Dostoevsky's. That's Nietzsche's observation. You don't get it. The ethic that you think is normative is a consequence of its, of, its, of its nesting inside this tremendously lengthy history, much of which was expressed in mythological formulation. You and I apologize for that echo. You can kind of hear a doubling of Jordan Peterson's voice. I was almost going to make a snarky comment. What's worse than one Jordan Peterson? Two of them talking at you at the same time. But like I said, there's actually things I like about Jordan Peterson. Um, I actually find some of his lectures uh, interesting. But when he starts talking about God and religion, that's usually where, uh, you know, I really start to disagree. And there's some weird stuff, you know, he said regarding uh, regarding women in the workplace and whatnot. But um, but anyway, so there he is kind of, again, trying to paint people like Dawkins and Sam Harris as naive that they take for granted that this morality that's according to Jordan Peterson, nested inside of a kind of mythological mythological construct, sorry about that, is a given. And they don't realize that if you get rid of the, the mythological construct it's nesting in, uh, if you get rid of, you know, that uh, religious or religio-symbolic foundation or whatever, then uh, all hell can break loose, you know? But one thing that occurred to me is, I'm not saying I know this for certain, but as someone who believes that our morality is at least partly, you know, rooted in evolution, what if it's not that our morality is nested inside of these mythological, man-made mythological constructs, but the other way around, that our morality shapes our myths? You know what I mean? So as members of a social species, our moral sensibilities, our natural social tendencies and behaviors and boundaries are kind of reflected in the myths we create. But then there could also be, a, it acts like a it's cyclical or like a feedback loop. And religion reinforces those evolved moral sensibilities. And it kind of makes sense because as I always say, we're a mixed bag, you know, um, I think we've evolved to have a capacity for empathy and altruism and group cooperation, but also tribalism and violence. And that would explain why, you know, something like the Bible is a mixed bag. It contains some inspirational stuff, some somewhat positive moral instruction, and also a lot of anachronistic, you know, barbarism and violence and uh, tribalism. And that's pretty much what I would expect if something like a chimpanzee evolved to the point where it could make a religion. <laughs> and I was going to reiterate my point that not just with humans, but with social animals in general, you tend to see members of the same species tolerating one another. There may be fights or challenges over mates, but let's not pretend we're much better. Uh, <laughs> You know, who hasn't seen two guys fighting over a girl at a house party or something? But, uh, and I was also, th I don't know why this uh, suddenly came to me. Um, 
Well, I was going to say, if there was some, something like a nuclear holocaust, like a Mad Max situation, or maybe coronavirus. I remember I posted something on my Facebook page the other day. I said something like, am I the only man-child who likes to pretend that the coronavirus is the beginning of the zombie apocalypse? But yeah, let's say there was some apocalyptic scenario where there was only, you know, a small group of survivors left who had to start from square one and reestablish human civilization. You know, I'm sure there would be uh, all sorts of marauders and people trying to take things by force, but you'd probably also see people instinctively forming groups and, demonstra and demonstrating or exhibiting group cooperation and showing empathy and stuff like that. And I bet you, and this is kind of an interesting thought experiment to kind of help gauge just how man-made or not you think religions actually are. Because if when I picture like let's a scenario where all of our civilization, all our knowledge of the past is lost and we have to start all over again from square one, I bet you we would invent religions again, new religions, but I don't think there would, they would be the same religions. There'd be totally new constructions. I don't think there's actually a supernatural Jesus up in the sky or in some ethereal realm looking down going, oh, I got to do all this again. All right, I'll be back. See you later. You know, I, um, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any validity to the supernatural faith claims put forward by any of the world's religions. It's kind of fun to think about, though. I wonder what the new gods would be like. You know what I mean? Um, I find that very, very interesting to think about. And that just made me think of uh, the TV show American Gods. Have they come out with another season of that yet? Is it up to... Is the next season going to be season three? I don't know if it's already come out or what's going on. I really dug the first two uh, seasons, though. I remember, even though, you know, I'm an atheist, agnostic atheist, so I think gods are all made up anyway. Within the story, I found something unsettling about the proposition that um, the gods weren't real. They are just, you know, there are inventions, but they're kind of like, thought forms so they become real and they take on a sense of reality uh, yes yeah, it's, it's like fascinating but unsettling at the same time but while we're on the subject of inventing gods uh, here i am responding to a jordan peterson video in which he really seems to be warning against getting rid of god um, and in a way i think it might be Another one of those junctures where I'm tempted to say, in a way, the whole argument's moot. Because even if we wanted to jettison the idea of God from our culture or from the collective consciousness, I think that you know, human beings are really kind of wired with a sense of agency or with a strong tendency to attribute agency. And I think it goes back to that old false positive versus a false negative thing. You know, we're pattern-seeking animals. And I think Michael Shermer used to use this example a lot. Imagine you're a little hominid on the savanna, and you hear rustling in a nearby bush. Maybe it's just the wind, but if you assume that there's something dangerous in there, and it was just the wind, you don't lose anything. You know, that's a false positive. You know, you're still safe or whatever. Um, 
But if you assume that it was just the wind, but there was really a venomous snake in there, you know, that could be life-threatening, and that would be a, be a false negative, assuming that there's nothing there when there actually was. And so it could be an evolutionary adaptation that we tend to attribute agency um, where there isn't any, you know? And I've joked about this on the show before, that even me, you know, someone who's a skeptic, who identifies technically as an agnostic atheist, you know, um, even I sometimes catch myself kind of superstitiously attributing agency or appealing to some kind of, you know, agent or something. And the example I usually use is, you know, there's been times when I've been on the highway and suddenly you feel some turbulence. You think there might be something wrong with your car. And all of a sudden you feel you you know, you find yourself kind of appealing to something like, oh, please let me get home safe in one piece or something. You know what I mean? And you know, when, when you're safe and you're able to think rationally about it, once you're in the clear, you're like, what the hell was I talking to? You know what I mean? I don't believe in God. Um, and it's interesting, I forget which Richard Dawkins book it was, but there's a chapter where he talks about this um, this kind of poem meant for children called Binker. And he talks about how the imaginary friend experience or phenomenon might be an example of this tendency to attribute agency where there isn't any or this feeling that you might sometimes get like there's another presence, uh, you know, around besides your own consciousness or something. Yeah, that's why I thought it, it was in the God delusion. And he actually reads from some of it in the book. Yeah, I'll actually read a bit of it. So it goes, Binker, what I call him, is a secret of my own. And Binker is the reason why I never feel alone. Playing in the nursery, sitting on the stair. Whatever I am busy at, Binker will be there. Oh, Daddy is clever. He's a clever sort of man. And Mummy is the best since the world began. And Nanny is Nanny, and I call her Nan. But they can't see Binker. And then I'll go down a bit and it says... Binker's brave as lions when we're running in the park. Binker's brave as tigers when we're lying in the dark. Binker's brave as elephants. He never, never cries. Except like other people when the soap gets in his eyes. It goes on like that. Um, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's amusing and cutesy, but it's also kind of unsettling and you know, a little creepy at the same time. Because it almost makes me think of that experience of almost feeling like there's another presence around, you know what I mean? That attributing of agency. But with that being said, I feel like I've been at this forever. I'm going to call it quits for now. Uh, as always, thanks everyone for listening. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, even though I don't really, I'm not really that active on Twitter. Uh, you can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. And if you want to help the show out monetarily, help out what I do here, you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month by going to patreon.com slash the week in doubt. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time.